0: Hi, welcome to the CCW SAFE podcast. I am Rob High in Oklahoma City, joined by my partner, Philip Naaman. Uh Phil, you're back home in the land of the lost.
1: Yes, the uh, People's Republic of Occupied California.
0: There you go. Behind
1: enemy lines. <laughs>
0: um, welcome home. I understand you just got back from a, a, a nice trip with your wife, so Hope everything went well and she'll stick around for another year or two. So,
1: Well, I made it home alive, so that's a good,
0: good that's, indicator. That's a positive indicator. Um, we are so excited today to uh, introduce you guys to Sarah Albrecht. Uh, Sarah is uh, very passionate about her work, her mission, um, and I think it's something that does not get nearly enough thought and recognition as far as gun owners go and part of our responsibility of being a responsible gun owner. Um, So, Sarah, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, what you're doing, and then we'll browbeat you after that. How about that?
2: Sounds like a great game plan, Rob. Um, Rob and Philip, thank you for having me today. Um, So my name is Sarah Joy Albrecht and I'm the founder and executive director for Hold My Guns. We are a 501C3 nonprofit and we partner with FFLs um, across the United States to provide voluntary firearm storage during times of crisis or personal need, such as during deployment or if a gun owner maybe is selling their home and they don't want to have their firearms in their car or storage bin or their hotel room. So our goal is to help reduce um, suicide, accidental shootings, and really by that we mean negligence um, because they can be prevented. Uh, and also theft of firearms and stolen firearms used in crimes and we do this in a way that helps to preserve rights it takes a proactive approach and it is also a non-legislative approach which is so important so we're very um, just proud about the work that we've done and more importantly of the firearms community and our goal is to encourage people and to help them to plan ahead and know that they have options Um, And so uh, even in this year since SHOT Show, we had two gun owners uh, store firearms with us and we didn't ask why, but they were very grateful and it helped to support their needs. So we hope to continue to expand and um, we really appreciate the work that you're doing as well to educate people and to help them to be prepared um, for whatever life uh, hands them as well. So thank you for the work that you do.
0: Thank you. Um, It's just one of those things that, you know, yes, it is our right to keep and bear arms. Um, It's a right that I believe is worth protecting. But part of that also is our personal responsibilities Mm -hmm. um, to doing that as safely as possible. Um, You know, you and I have talked previously uh, I love your mission. I like the things that are possible for you, and there's so many things out there that uh, people just don't really give a lot of thought to ahead of time. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I've
0: got a, I've got a a big safe. Um, my stuff is is locked up. It's secure. Not everybody does. You know, somebody, some people have, you know, just a a, a gun lock on their on their firearm individually. Um, but this goes beyond, you you know, we have, uh, still, still have issues with veteran suicides in the country. Mm -hmm. And these are also means that these guys can step out and go kind of, kind of in a dark spot right now. Um, but if you, if you don't know where to Reach out to for help if you don't know some of the the venues that are available and some of the things that you guys are are opening up for them. They they're afraid that if if somebody finds out that I'm I'm dealing with issues that somebody's going to come take my guns away from me, and then they're gone. Um, this is a means to be self sufficient and proactive and. I'm going to take this step myself as I'm going through this chapter. Mm -hmm. Then I don't have to go through the courts again to go through all that, to try to get my, my firearms returned. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's, I think that's a huge bonus for some of these guys and, and understanding that options are available kind of relieve some of the, the tensions of that. So. Yes um how would uh, let me go a a completely different route say I am I'm fostering a child Mm -hmm. and I get a I get a child in the house that has some some mental health issues or some anger issues and things like that and suddenly it's you know I'm it's probably not the best situation to have firearms in the home with this child And how can I go about that? And so I reach out to you and what do we do?
2: That's a great question, Rob. Um, Basically what you would do is go to our website and find a location near you. We currently have three locations with more in the works. Um, Hopefully one soon in Washington state and one in Georgia. So those are upcoming. Um, But again, our goal is to expand across the United States. And from there you would contact our storage partner and say, hey, I would like for you to hold my guns and they would help you to set up an appointment and then you would bring in your firearms. Um, And again, this is voluntary. So this needs to be, the the gun owner cannot be a prohibited person. We are limited to help people who are not prohibited. Um, And we follow a consignment and consignment return process, which basically means that the gun owner is still the owner of the firearm, but they transfer temporary possession to that that FFL, that retail FFL. And what that um, means is that that gun shop then um is they're holding on to it for you and they are required just like you know just like if it were a consignment transaction actual consignment transaction that they have it in their best interest to protect your property. And we require that those FFL partners carry a general liability insurance so that if that uh, location, for example, might, you know, have some natural disaster happen that your firearms would be covered under that insurance. So we really take it seriously. As a gun owner myself, I, you know, have invested in purchasing uh, firearms and and related accessories. And so we want to make sure that You know that they are properly cared for in a way that they'll when they're returned to that gun owner when they come back to pick them up that they're in the same uh condition and maybe even cleaned if that gun owner asks for extra work to be done it could happen um but basically you would make an appointment and you would say um hey i'm ready to pick up my firearms now and you would work with them to um to come pick up that firearm or firearms and as as we follow the, that consignment return um, regulation, we do require 4473 at the time of pickup um, and they and again they have to attest that they are not a prohibited person and they're lawfully able to possess a firearm and and pack, pass that background check. That being said, um, we can also store non-serialized critical parts such as a barrel or a firing pin so um, you know perhaps if somebody has a um, you know, a firearm that that uh, they just want to keep at their house, but make sure that it is not um, going to be operable. That's a that is a way operational, that's a way that they can um, help to mitigate that temptation to use that firearm in a harmful way. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there as well. Um, And that being said, if someone um, is in need and they can't find a location close to them, please give us a call. We do have um, some other options across the United States. And we also want for people to know that they're supported in whatever situation they're going through. So um, don't hesitate to reach out. And if you are an FFL that is interested in working with us, please get in touch. Um, we are again looking to just expand across the United States. And it's important to have partners in all in each state because many times, gun laws vary from state to state. And we would never want for someone to have to choose between, um, you know, unlawfully driving across state lines with a magazine that has a couple more rounds than puts allowed, right? Uh, And make that choice between that and maybe, you know, helping to prevent a a teenager and suicide crisis in their household from having access to that firearm. Um, So we never want people to have to choose. And that's why it's so important that our community takes leadership um, to provide this option uh, for gun owners. So um, Rob, you had mentioned veterans um, and also um, I want to point out that we are we have a collaboration with the Northwest Pennsylvania Suicide Prevention Project here, and um, we're seeing the fruit of that. We really have a heart for working with veterans. My dad um, served in the Marine Corps in Vietnam, and so um, and I have several fam- family members who have served. and it is something that's very dear to my heart. Um, we also hear from folks in law enforcement, uh, maybe it's the anniversary of, of their partner's death and they just need uh, to get over that tough weekend, for example, and they can take their personal firearm um, to one of our FFL partners and store it and just discreetly get over that hurdle so that they don't have to make a big deal about it. Like you said, there can be a lot of stigma and even with um, best intentions in, in you know, Uh, and policies in place with careers that are sensitive like that, there's still a lot of stigma and trepidation for someone to actually like report it or bring in their firearm uh, to like a community locker or something like that. So we want people to know that that option is there. I started Hold My Guns because we lost an 18-year-old friend to suicide by firearm, and I'm a range safety officer. And when my kids and the members in our community came to me and they're like, mom, you know, we value our right to bear arms. Uh, my kids all grew up around firearms. They shoot in a rifle league. I have a distinguished expert, two experts and two sharpshooters. So firearms are very much a part of our lives. And they said, mom, you know, we want to make sure that these rights are preserved, but our friend is dead. How can we help people in crisis? Not everyone has a friend or a family member that people feel like they can ask. Um, to help store a firearm or who's lawfully able to do that. And even if they do have um, a, a firearm safe and their you know, their two year old's not gonna get into that firearm while they're storing it for a friend who's in crisis, um, it doesn't mean that that person is is um, going to be quiet about it. And so it would be really awful if, you know, maybe we're all out with friends, and then someone says, like, you know, hey, buy you know, a couple of drinks go by, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, I have Sarah's firearms, right? So, we want to make sure that this service is professional and discreet, um, which is why we partner with FFLs because, again, we know that not everybody has friend or family members who are qualified or trustworthy to store firearms. Um, and another thing to, to just encourage people about or to help them think about um, is that. You, know, you mentioned, Rob, that you have a firearm safe. Not everybody does. Um, certainly, we recommend that and, and um, I applaud you for having one. I, prior to founding Hold My Guns, I was a, a doula which basically means that I help in delivery rooms and also um, a childbirth educator for 11 years. And I specialized in helping clients who had experienced sexual trauma, which puts them more at risk for postpartum depression. And I had a client who called me and she said, Sarah, I have the gun safe open and I just can't do this anymore. I can't just live another day like this and she had a colicky baby who was having some eating issues and then a bunch of young kids under the age of five and she wasn't sleeping and there wasn't really good self-care there and her husband owned a company and and you know he was doing his best to provide for his family but his wife wasn't able to get the support that she needed and she was trying to really be tough about it but it just all you know Came to a head, and it was one of those tough days. And I said, "I will." I, I lived close enough. I said, "I'll be right over." Walk away, close that door, and walk away. And she did. And myself and one of our mutual friends, with her consent, came over and we unloaded her firearms. I brought her a freezer meal. We had her take a nap, and um, we we're like, "Okay, dinner's gonna be in the oven. We're gonna watch your kids. Just relax." And she's still with us today, and really my point in sharing this is that even when you have you know the best firearm safe if you still have someone who has access to that safe and they're having a tough time like during postpartum depression or maybe they've you know they've experienced some other you know earth-shattering trauma like um you know tough medical diagnosis or whatever um that can be a temptation to open that safe and to use that firearm in a harmful way on themselves. So what I encourage and and what we have been sharing with everyone is the importance of having a personal safety plan and helping people to um, think if I were in crisis or if someone in my home were in crisis, what is our plan for lethal means and making sure that we have a plan such as taking that firearm to hold my guns location, if God forbid one of us were ever in crisis. And we also in that plan have um, sections in there where people can fill out, you know, what are some of my coping mechanisms? What are some things that I want for my care team to remember um, such as, you know, I feel whenever I hear fireworks, that loud noise scares me and it makes me think about when I have been in, uh, in combat or I've been in a situation where, um, you know, I'm being shot at. And so, you know, help me when it's this time, not don't get angry with me, but instead here are the things that help me to feel better. Um, there are sections in that plan about self-care, about making sure that, you know, you're sleeping and, and. Um, hydrating and eating, all of those things can really, if you're, if you have deficits in those areas, can really help to, or can really impair judgment. So it's a proactive plan. It's multifaceted. And then we also have a place in there where people can write down their preferred care providers, such as their doctors, their mental health professionals, their uh, pastor or counselor, their battle buddy. We want to make sure that all of those um, critical Um, contacts are readily accessible. And this is a PDF that people can print out so they can keep it, you know, on their person or in a a place that is safe. Um, It doesn't have to be shared with anybody. But Um, You know, if if you are in crisis and you don't have access to that information, um, sometimes it can just really make you be along for the ride. And the more people can prepare ahead of time, just like if they're a member um, with you, right, that you're helping them to prepare ahead of time. Then the less that they are going to be spinning in a time of crisis, and the more prepared they're going to be, and the more agency they will have if they're in crisis because their wishes will be heard and honored because they have already articulated exactly the plan that works best for them. So I just, that's a mouthful, but like you said, Rob, I'm passionate about this. And I hope that people who hear this, again, know that they have options, but are also motivated to plan ahead. And that way they can have agency if they are ever in a time of crisis.
0: That's that's really the biggest reason I wanted to get you in here. Um, truly, there are so many things out there, so many different factors that can weigh in. Um, the very first police officer I ever trained Mm. was killed in the line of duty. Um, awesome, awesome man. His name is Jeff Rominger and he was killed in a, in an accident, a vehicle accident, but it was in a pursuit. Um, and another officer lost his life as well. And that's one of those things that I will remember forever. Oh, yes. um, I've I've lost other partners. I lost an academy classmate. That same thing. He was involved in a pursuit. There's so many different issues that are so dangerous for mm-hmm. law enforcement, fire, uh, ambulance personnel, uh, first responders are really, really at risk on on things that you just don't think about on a day to day and then those anniversaries come up mm-hmm. and and they are big steps they're they're things that have to be thought out same way with with our military veterans that have have lost friends in combat or you know there's there's other things that people just really don't ever think about unless you've been in those shoes and you get those guys that have gone in And really been involved in some really hairy stuff. And the bonds that you develop with the people that you're there with Mm -hmm. are lifetime bonds. There's nothing that matches that. And then upon your separation, that's gone. Because Mm -hmm. I've, I've been on both sides of that. The guys that are in that unit suddenly know that it is just next man up. I, I can't, I can't be all worried about the fact that Sarah's not with us anymore. Now I know that Phil is Sarah's replacement and Phil's my guy. And that's what we have to do. And, and all of a sudden you're like, what do I do now? Cause I was just part of this amazing thing and now nobody cares. Well, they do. It's just, it's just feeling that loss, you know, and there's some of those guys. I I, I kind of like the, the way they look at it, is like the realization that I'm never going to be as cool as I once was. That's really not it, but
2: right. Yes. It's
0: that kind of bond that 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 really is really difficult to replace. Um, Phil and I do a lot of talk about training. We talk a lot about de-escalation and things like mm-hmm. that. De-escalation can be a self de-escalation as well. Yes. Um, and I know that you are really big on the training as- aspect as well. Like you were just, just mentioning, um, there's so many things out there that, that people are really not aware of unless you happen to work at one of these places or you're present when it occurs, mm-hmm. but the numbers of suicides that it that take place at gun ranges, you know, I don't have to have a gun. I, you know, all of a sudden this happens and I show up and, and we've got a couple of really big, nice ranges here in Oklahoma city. And I know for a fact that they have had this experience. Mm -hmm. So the ability to, to come in and train your personnel, give them things to look for. Um, it's, it's just something that goes beyond just my right to have a gun you know it's it's the responsibility to make sure that that all of us are are safe and and have a means to to this kind of education and things so you know I know that you have the the uh, relationship with QPR in this institute amazing 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 training Um, and and they do all aspects. Um, you know, they can they can do individual things or organizational things and and uh, I think those things are are critical, especially for guys that that are teaching a lot of classes and doing a lot of things. So how about you talk about that for just a little bit?
2: Thank I you, love. Rob. Go oh ahead.
1: yes, go ahead. Just to, to come back on one of the things you said earlier. When somebody's picking one up just to get the operational part of this down, you have a 4473. They fill out. Do they need to redrose their firearms?
2: I say that. Can you say the last? Say it one more time.
1: So when they're coming back in to pick up their firearms, you said they fill out a 4473, which is the attest- attestation that I'm yes. not a prohibited person. Do the firearms have to be redrosed? Uh, Do the record of sale? back to the FBI background check? Do they have to pay for that or are they able just to pick it up and go home?
2: They do have to pay for the background check and there are fees associated with Um, Storage Again, we don't know why the individual is storing their firearm. So if we were just to say, hey, it's free if you're in crisis, then it would out somebody who might be in crisis. Um, Also, with the background check and actually going through that process, not just attesting it, um, it does help to reduce liability to the gun shops, Mm -hmm. so that they are not handing that firearm back to a prohibited person. Um, And that is, it's a tough thing because uh, you know, on one hand, we want to have, um, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I, I think if a person has served their time, uh, that they should be able to defend their life with a firearm if they're no longer in jail and they're no longer, you know, caught up in that system. But we do have, you know, we do have to be very careful um, to work within the requirements. And one of the ATF requirements for consignment return um, is that the 4473 is required and that a background check is required. So they have to go through that process. Now, in the future, if that changes, then our policy could change, Um, but we, um, extensively worked with our legal counsel, um, who's Joshua Prince, and and uh, he's phenomenal. He's very passionate about protecting and preserving rights, uh, as well as our insurance, which um, you know that's a whole nother thing. It was quite a a feat to be to be insured insured as a five hundred one c three who's storing firearms. <laughs> so um, you know, again, it's it's one of those things where gun the the Legislation that's out there, like the gun control legislation that's out there that does um, kind of dictate how we operate in a regulated space, we have to work within the confines of that. But if I, a person, I get that. So, yeah, the thing is
1: so if you're in a state that has a holding period, you will have to dross. Yeah, I sold the gun in consignment, bought it back in, it didn't sell. So I had to dross it to myself. I had to wait the 10 days just to get my own firearm back. And so make sure people were clear that it's just as if you're buying a firearm over again, whatever the regulations are in the state that you're in, yes. that applies to this also.
2: I Thank you for, for putting it that way, Philip. Yes. And and it is, again, it, it is a fresh, frustrating thing. And I really um am, am, am disagree with the idea of waiting periods, but... We, again, we're working in a regulated space, but I have heard from people who uh, their firearms were confiscated because, you know, they were in a situation where uh, maybe someone had filed a protection from abuse order or something like that, or maybe, you know, um, they were red flagged or something like that. And the amount of time that it took for them to go through the court systems and to get their firearms back and then to try to Um, Well, first to be allowed to possess a firearm again, and then to even get their firearms back if they ever were. um, That is a terrible process to go through. So I, while I disagree with that, and we have to follow our you know the policies that are um, put forth by those states. um, The silver lining is that it's much better than um, than you know losing your rights or losing your firearms. you know, and again, you don't necessarily have to have a waiting period if there's a, if you're storing a non-serialized critical part. So that, just keep that in mind. If someone's in a state where they do have waiting periods or something like that, that, um, that there are options that people can work with. That being said, the hard part was figuring out how do we store a completed firearm that has you know, a serial number on it. That was the really big obstacle to overcome. And uh, we just want people to know that, you know, that there are some options there. So does that answer your question, Phil?
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Go back to your question.. Then. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, about yeah. that, Rob.
2: Uh, <laughs> That's great. We don't want to lose that thought, right? No, that's absolutely.
0: Um, back yeah. to back to QPR stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, are, you, are you in a partnership with them? Do you have an affiliation with them? What What is?
2: So I became certified last year as a QPR. Um, gatekeeper trainer, which means that I can offer that training. And it it, basically people who take my classes can be certified as QPR gatekeepers, which uh, QPR, we're just throwing that acronym around stands for question, persuade and refer. And it is likened to CPR for um, a a crisis that's life threatening, but in, in a more mental health kind of way. And, and so the the goal of this training is to learn how to ask good questions and to um, determine if a person may be in a suicide crisis, um, to persuade or to talk with them and help to understand uh, what their options are and then refer them to um, appropriate care. And that's really important because as a range safety officer, um, you know, I know from looking at some of our standard operating procedures at the ranges where I work, there's not, there's like, you know, pages on what to do if there's a gunshot wound, but there's really nothing in those SOPs about how do we help people who might be experiencing a mental health crisis on the range. And so I advocate for um, range safety officers, instructors, um, people who work in gun shops, gun shop employees, to um, have this important knowledge, how to talk to someone and deescalate, uh, and first to, to identify those warning signs, but also to know what resources are available, whether it's the National um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline or local resources like a, a many communities have crisis response teams. Um, you know, even here in um, in Pennsylvania, um, there is a, a group that specifically is for veterans. So. And they send out a counselor um, to help a veteran who's in crisis. So something that we do with Hold My Guns is whenever we have a storage location, we um, have a little survey and we learn about what are the crisis response type um, resources in that area. And we make sure that that gun shop is aware of them. But in teaching QPR training, we want to make sure that people in the firearms community, you're also aware of those resources because they can be life-saving. I like it because it doesn't set up the, um, the firearms professional to be a counselor. That's you know not necessarily everyone's background, and so it reduces liability in a sense because there can be a process followed. Like you know we saw this person um, behaving in a reckless way on the range. They seem to be um, trying to handle their firearm in a way that led us to believe they might, you know, be thinking about self-harm or maybe they were acting in in an intoxicated way and they were not um, making sense, they weren't coherent, but they were talking about ending their own life. And so we, um, you know, had them step away from the firearm, we made sure it was unloaded and we talked to them and then we referred them to um, these services and we made sure that, you know, they made that call or whatever it might be. So, Having something in the SOP that would create a process so that gun ranges and and retail locations know how to interact with that person to de-escalate it and to document it in a way that also reduces liability, not just because it's a checkbox and it's like this cold thing, but again, when you plan ahead and you have a process, you're not worried about, um, you know, "Hmm, I wonder what the best practices are here. (laughs) You have training, so it just automatically... Goes back to your training, and you can act in a um, more coherent and efficient and fast way to help deescalate something. So, had felt, yeah,
1: something like that. Um, have you created something that you could actually give to like the NRA that's part of their instructor package? I mean, is that something that you're working on or have done?
2: Well, not specifically with NRA, um, although I, I, I am a lifetime member of NRA. Um, But I just bring them up
1: because they do so much of everybody's right so
2: yes, so Um. as far as I know, nobody else is offering qpr training directly in the firearms community we've already trained over 50 individuals here in in Pennsylvania at the lower Providence rod and gun club and the response was overwhelming. Some people have already used their training to de-escalate suicide uh, crises and and mental health crises and referred people to care. Uh, I was recently asked by a girl in a gun which is a national firearms organization for women to come and teach qpr uh as a as a certificate course at their national conference coming up in april there is a potential for perhaps up to uh 350 women um, who many of them are firearms professionals um, to take this course and to be certified i really hope that as this momentum grows that that um that more organizations will see the value of it and see what a blind spot we have as a firearms community that, you know, we spend so much time preparing for a crisis where, you know, what do you do if you're in a grocery store parking lot and it's dark at night and someone comes around a car, you know, like we spend so much time thinking about that, that we have, we ignore this blind spot of crisis from within our own home or dealing with a mental health crisis and helping someone who is in distress and actively trying to take their own life. So I just hope that um, that more organizations will understand the value of this. We chose to work with QPR and to get this training uh, myself and our our treasurer um, Paul Jones also received this training certificate um, to allow us to help train others. and we did this because two of our um, board members, our former treasurer, as well as my co-founder, are firearms instructors. And they both had situations where um, someone called them up. In one case, that person came to the range. They were behaving strangely. And my co-founder stopped the lesson. They were like, you know, I just don't think that today is a good day to be doing this. You, you know, we really need to make sure that you have focus on, um, what we're doing, handling these firearms safely. And I just don't think it's a good time. And and that person said, actually, yeah, I'm I'm really not having a good day. And um, you're right. And they never called her back, but they were safe on the range that day. And then um, our former treasurer, um, he had a situation where someone called and as they were scheduling the class, they were asking questions that Um, you know, I think one of them was like, well, I have time alone on the range and just maybe talking about like some of the reasons why they were interested in taking the class, but it just seemed kind of vague. And so he asked, you know, I'm just wondering, like, are you thinking of taking your own life? And she said, actually, yes. And so we had a conversation about this and my co-founder mentioned her situation. And we realized this is something that, um, you know, It does happen in the firearms community and so we decided, um, you know, how cool would it be when someone is perhaps in crisis and they're looking up their local range and their local instructor and they're thinking of taking their own life. How amazing would it be if they saw that instructor or they saw that range and there was, you know. A, a certificate, some a QPR certified in suicide prevention training. And instead of saying, I'm going to call this instructor because I'm going to use this opportunity to take my life, they saw that, wow, this person's a gun owner is trained in suicide prevention training. They are a person that I can trust to get help, uh, to ask to get help. So that is our hope. And uh, again, those who took um, the training. Um, for At Lower Providence, we've already received um, excellent feedback that they have used their training for good and to save lives. So, I Beautiful. hope that it expands, and I I hope that um, it'd be awesome if CCW Safe would, <laughs> um, you know, just take that to heart too, as as you offer training to see the value of um, deescalating in a, a mental health or suicide prevention crisis as well. So, yeah.
0: I I, I like that. How, what. Kind of talk me through as as you were going through to to get your training and and uh, be certified, um, kind of your length of time, what what your what your investment is into that. um, Just just for people that might be interested in those things.
2: So the first step is to take the QPR gatekeeper training, which is a basic course. It's about three hours. Um, And in that there's role playing, there's an understanding of, um, you know, how to assess if a person might be in crisis. Um, It has, you really go through a lot of understanding risk factors and why a person's in crisis, you go through like statistics on suicide and and, um, emphasis on making sure that a person in crisis does not have immediate access to lethal means. Um, Again, from our perspective, we want to make sure that people have a proactive plan. Um, We're not advocating that people just, I'm not advocating for red flags, so I just have to say that, but um, we want for people to understand like, hey, you know, if you're, if you are around someone and they're in crisis, you want to make sure that they're not, sitting right next to a firearm or there, you know, um, have a bottle of pills there. It's like, okay, that bottle is open. Um, how many have you taken? Like, it helps you to learn how to ask questions like that, knowing that those seconds can count. And um, so it's that kind of training. And then there's a role-playing um, section that is really valuable because sometimes, especially if you're not familiar with, it's not natural or normal for you to have these kind of intense conversations with someone, ask these hard, hard questions. To have the opportunity to kind of put those thoughts and that training into words is really valuable. Um, there's also review of different resources and um, and what each resource has to offer and how to ask people to um, to connect with those resources and understanding the importance of a warm handoff. Understanding, like you know, hey, can I? Um, I have my cell phone with me. Can we make this call together? Things like that. Um, So there's just, it's really helpful training. That's about three hours. And then the trainers, um, the the trainer certificate course is an eight hour course. And some places break it up over a number of days. Um, I was really eager to do it. So I read all through all the materials and then did the the um training on in one day and it was a very long day um but then we stay in touch with our local trainers and i have sat in on different um you know training opportunities so uh and and community connections through them as well and that's a little bit more in depth it's creating a plan it is um helping companies understand you know how to look for a crisis it's how it's making sure that you are familiar with all the resources. It's a little bit more in depth on protective factors and risk factors and understanding a little bit more about the psychology of behind a suicide crisis um, and that not everybody, for example, who is in crisis necessarily has a mental health diagnosis and to understand with that risk factors and protective factors that um, you know a person can have um, all of these protective factors, but they're one or two risk factors that are just really um, pronounced. Are maybe that's why they might be thinking of taking their own life. So it helps people to have a helps the trainers have a better understanding of why someone is in crisis. So they're not making assumptions while they're talking to people. Um, but again, it's more more policy oriented and teaching people how to and facilitating like all right how do you facilitate a group discussion if you're training people that kind of thing it was so valuable and eye-opening to me um i think taking that training has helped me to understand um i guess how how the the big thing the big takeaway was that people carry around invisible burdens and the, the analogy that they used was to carry them around in their their invisible backpack that everybody carries and you know when, for example, if someone's out at the range, we don't know if maybe they just had a parent who died or maybe their spouse filed for divorce, or maybe they lost their job or something like that. And so we can't just be like, you know, oh, is this person in a mental health crisis? It could be, wow, this person has a lot going on in their life. So how can we connect with them as one human to another and not just, you know, a person in crisis out on the line? So anyway, it was, it's amazing. And um, I recently had the chance to talk with Paul Connett, who is the founder of QPR. um, And he provided, you know, just more information about firearms and statistics about um, uh, deaths on, on gun ranges. Uh, Apparently it's about a hundred a year. So that was a interesting statistic. Um, And it just, you know, again, it's it is something that can be prevented. I think with more training and awareness, and so I hope to do that.
0: A, cu- a- couple
1: things. On go ahead.
0: No, I said you had a question. What was it?
1: <laughs> um, you mentioned some of the reasons that somebody would be feeling this way are transitory. I mean, I, I think that's pretty much the point. At that point in time, right, they're at the yeah. low spot. They're not going to stay there forever, and so. Mm-hmm with your actions and hold my gun you're getting them through that point so they can find the help get their life back on track and realize that you know the world didn't end yesterday you know we talk about suicides the number one cause of death by firearm is self-inflicted homicides i think we average it's within a thousand or two between 32 and 33,000 a year homicides with a firearm homicide meaning any cause of death by firearm, not all murders. And somewhere in the neighborhood of 19,000 of those are suicides, 19 mm-hmm. to 20, somewhere in that range. And then, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that that's, you know, that's where we're at and what we're looking at is we're looking at a huge society issue. It's a heart issue. It's not a, it's not a firearm issue. It's not a gun control issue. It's a heart issue look at the same time we've got 90,000 overdoses on opioids again it's a heart issue and, and that's you know compliments you for reaching out because that's where it really matters is on the on the human level not just the means of operation that they chose this or they drove off a cliff or they were drunk driving and hit a wall those are all different types but the means of operation uh, is one thing but the cause the underlying part again Murder has always been a hard issue from from Cain and Abel on. Yes. And, you know, that was a rock, you know. And so uh, we don't have rock control. But it's just important that you realize that these are, if somebody's in this, this dark zone, it's a transitory zone. Mm-hmm. And seeking help gets you out of it, not deciding yes. to get it there.
2: And we give them, t- by storing firearms and by Um, talking with people in the range and de-escalating we're giving people time and space to seek help or to cool off or let a terrible anniversary to pass or whatever that might be Um, we're giving people the opportunity to choose life and you know I like I said I'm a range safety officer firearms have been a big part of our life for a long time and some people say you know well, you know, I'm sure that someone else is, you know, they can always overdose or whatever. And, and that certainly is the case. Firearms are our lane. And so I think we have a responsibility, whatever, um, you know, our background might be, we need to use that for the best of our ability to help others and to create change. I certainly hope that the pharmaceutical industry does a better job of, you know, reducing access to, you um, to substances and doing a better job of controlling that versus handing out um you know narcotics like candy. It's <laughs> uh, a whole so, different show. You know, <laughs> right. So I hope that what we do in the firearms industry, you know, and what we do for liberty and to empower people to make good choices and to have provide options like hold my guns and suicide prevention training. I hope that it serves as a catalyst for liberty that empowers other sectors to realize hey if we can educate people versus legislate um, solutions that maybe more lives can be saved and we can also help to change those hearts of people to realize hey I don't have to continue to live this way I can seek help. Wouldn't it just be amazing if people saw what we're doing in the firearms community which is so we're we're demonized because oh, guns are terrible, um, you know. And you were mentioning um, about the the number of suicides. Uh, suicide is the number one cause of firearms related deaths, um, and and murders up there too. But suicide surpasses murder. But, you know, whenever we talk about firearms and self-defense, whenever we talk about firearms, the media really ignores the self-defense aspect. And that is that there are up to 2 million defensive uses of firearms each year, which could be anything from someone, you know, kind of brandishing their firearm in a safe way and saying, look, don't mess Uh, with me, right? Or to actually use Right. (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) That's another show.
2: Yes, but but you understand what I'm saying, yes. and the media of, often will overlook the defensive unit, the defensive uses, and they'll have a hyper focus on the largest cause of firearms related deaths, and that's suicide. And then they weaponize suicides and mental health to push a legislative agenda. We have the opportunity in the firearms community to really sweep the legs out from underneath that, because if we can take responsibility for approximately 60% of all firearms related deaths, then we're also undermining 60% of that argument for for gun control. And we're taking care of it in a way that promotes self-governance and the preservation of rights. I think there's a tremendous opportunity there to push back and not just be along for the ride on that terrible narrative that totally ignores self-defense uses of firearms every year.
1: I, I get where you're going on that and I, I appreciate your heart but one of the things you just said is that we're taking responsibility for the 60% of suicides and that, that's something that law-abiding gun owners can't take responsibility for that. I mean obviously again it comes back to being a heart issue and mm-hmm. and um so I don't think that that because someone chose a particular mean to commit a suicide, that that industry is is uh, demonized. You know, if they drove off a cliff, is GM in fault. So I think it's ice, easy that for is the thin news.
2: ice. Yes. And I so I want to be very clear, Philip. And I appreciate that you're pointing that out because I don't want this to be twisted in any way. I think that whatever industry That we're in, and whatever means and resources that we have, that we should be aware of things such as suicide. If people are using our items in a way that is unsafe, and I think we have responsibility, for example, you wouldn't just hand a firearm to someone, you know, as an instructor and just say, Here, go have fun. You would say, Here's how you're safe with the firearm. And I think that we have an opportunity to. Instruct people. By the way, if you're ever in crisis, here are some options. I think we you know, have an opportunity, but that, exactly. Right, but there's also. a very clear delineation between holding a manufacturer responsible for somebody's heart or somebody, you know, having a firearms instructor be responsible for what, um, you know, what a person is. Um, their intentions. We don't know what a person's intentions are. And that's very important for Hold My Guns is we don't ask people because we respect privacy and we don't think that um, we know that whatever reason that person is choosing on their own to store their firearms, that that is their business. Um, I don't want to make that leap to say that, you know, I I disagree with with, with those who say that they're responsible, but at the same time, we do want to educate people. And we educate people because we, You know, we care about firearms and we want to preserve the right to have self-defense. And so that, like, it comes back to responsibility. And when we start to legislate those things, um, it actually creates more stigma where people are afraid to get help because they're afraid... You know, to say, wow, if I mention this or if I confront somebody who's on the range who looks to be in crisis, am I going to be held liable for this? Like, it creates scenarios where people fall through the cracks and they don't get help or they don't help somebody else because they're so worried about those kind of lawsuits. That's It's just a... I I hate it (laughs) and instead we we need to say what's the right thing to do and how can we educate people and provide options so they can have self-governance that's what liberty is about and I I, again I think that whatever industry people are in if they can promote self-governance and provide options um that it's a beautiful thing to help humanity and and uh I hate weaponized agendas that prevent people from seeking help or offering help so I just want to be clear about that
0: I, I I agree um you know, it was something it's it's been more than 20 years ago, and we have done such a disservice to those that need to be served in the mental health community. Not not as firearms owners, as Americans, we've really kind of kind of just let those people free to suffer, um, mm-hmm. and. I know law enforcement more than 20 years ago made very concerted efforts into uh, crisis intervention response. It's at least part of your continuing education in the state of Oklahoma. That is a part of your annual training every single year, Um, and it was met with you know, groans and grumbles, the worst, the worst group in the world are are law enforcement, as far as, you know, you want me to change what? I'm not changing. But then all of a sudden, you saw, you saw the fruits of those trainings. And it really became a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And yes, we still have issues. We still have guys that because on the law enforcement end, and on the self defense end, I don't make a decision that I'm going to go out and harm somebody. I'm going to defend myself, mm-hmm. um, and we. I, I just think we've seen a, a tremendous improvement in that regard, and so the same with me. As you know, I'm I'm retired. I'm not in law enforcement. I am a civilian gun owner and carrier now, and I still shoulder that great responsibility of of safe firearms ownership and carry and everything else and and if as an instructor and I've been a firearms instructor for 25 years as an instructor if if I have those additional tools to recognize something that might be wrong when somebody steps on the line then I have something that that may actually save a life mm-hmm. it, I don't know that it will, but, but I have that opportunity if I have that knowledge. And I think that's a big deal. So um, I agree. It It's, it's not a, you know, as Phil was saying, I, I can't take responsibility in the 2A community because somebody chose to utilize a certain means as, as their, their exit strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do have other responsibilities. And, and part of that is, is if I had the, the opportunity to recognize and see this, and it's like, I've, I've had things just myself, as far as recognizing, you know, it, somebody is, is completely depressed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and if you don't understand depression, if you've not experienced depression or had training in that regards you're like why are you sad they're not sad they're apathetic they don't give a crap and there's a big difference there I mean it's it's not a sadness it's an overwhelming kind of consuming thing and it's just a really dark place for them to be Mm -hmm. so the the more education we get especially as as people that are leaders in the community as far as the 2A community. Um, Again, that's one of the things Phil and I are always talking about is is training and education and de-escalation and and providing those things. And we've had members that write into us and tell us, oh my gosh, I was in this situation. And had I not heard this piece of information from you guys, my decision probably would have been this and it would have got me arrested Mm -hmm. so that's that's it's very
2: very comparable isn't it that when you educate people they can make informed decisions which again is self-governance and and it might be an informed decision in a crisis to you know choose to be to engage or to choose to take cover or to um, however you might need to help, especially when you have that responsibility because you're also carrying a firearm. Um, So it's the same kind of education and that that type of education can help gun owners to make informed decisions about their own personal care, but also for in their household. If there's a firearm in the household and they have again, like, you know, a spouse suffering from postpartum depression, it might be a good thing to just consider, do they have access to firearms? Um, Maybe there's a teenager that has, you know, showing signs of addiction or cutting or um, other warning signs and and that the parents who are gun owners can make a decision, how am I going to make sure that my my teenager does not have unauthorized access to firearms? We do not, this is a non-legislative, voluntary thing that gun owners take the personal responsibility to say, you know, I'm gonna, and this is in the scope of, of how they might order their day entirely. You know, it's, it's within that scope and context of responsible living. Um, which can also include making sure that people in our home know that they're loved and that they can, you know, have a conversation, even if it's two o'clock in the morning and they need to talk to someone, um, that, that they can, you're there to support them if they want to seek help. It's within that context. It is, you know, the the opposite of that is, again, create stigma, and it's a hyper-focus on a firearm, which is just a hunk of metal, right? And it's a, it's a but it's a, a very useful hunk of metal. It's a very useful tool. But when there is a hyper-focus on that, then all of those human things like those conversations and seeking care and, and making sure that person you know, has food and that they're sleeping okay and that they're keeping up with whatever they need to be doing in order to get through the day. Um, if it's within that context, then that focus is on people and healing and creating a life that people want to wake up to the next day. Um, all of that falls through the cracks when there's a hyper-focus on firearms. And that is where um, people who really, really want to push for gun control, ultimately they are completely missing the mark and they are not doing a service to people who are in crisis.
0: Well, and most of them are completely uneducated and have been driven by foolish things from people with an agenda and, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, well, I, I listened to Sarah and I believe her. So whatever Sarah told me has got to be true. Um, <laughs>
2: Informed decisions, right? Yeah, <laughs> do your mean, own research. You, and many people don't.
0: You have an obligation to absolutely dig into this yourself. It's it, it it's one of the things that that for whatever faults we have, it's still it's still why America is the greatest country on the on the planet. It just is. Um,
1: if we so took yeah, our so obligation as private citizens to dig in and find things out and do the right thing. Wouldn't be any needs to conceal carry, right? Yes. And it's, it, it is what we're dealing with. Again, it goes back to the hard issues. It, it's it's all of us abdicating responsibility to something else to let somebody else mm-hmm. run it in charge, not doing what we need to do. You know, you mentioned the teenagers uh, cutting those kind of issues. You've got te- you have got to spend time with your teenagers. You have mm-hmm. to spend yes. time with them. You can't let them isolate it. You know. Run them hard, go to bed tired, and then do it again the next day because you've got to keep them busy. This is the time where they grow and, and set themselves up for the future. And to mm-hmm. leave them to their own devices is not a good thing. So we have the responsibility. You have to be engaged with your children. You have to be engaged with your nieces and nephews and know what's going on with them and their parents. You need to be aware and to care. I think that's probably was part of your motto there, Sarah, is aware and care.
2: Yes. And I have my my kids are ages 21 down to 15 and I have five. And, you know, I love everything. Yes. As a young uh, mother
1: with five kids. Wow.
2: So I and I'm also um, one of my jobs is a range safety officer at a youth league. And we um, help kids ages 8 to 18 learn how to safely use firearms, but really enjoy shooting sports. So all of the things that you said are just very front and center. And they're within that context of, you know, what does liberty look like? What is creating a world and and helping our next generation to love life? What does that look like? And how does responsibility fit into that? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, that could be a whole nother show. Um, but it is so important that we don't just, you know, okay, well, I've got all my boxes checked, but not have. A good relationship with our kids. They need encouragement too. They they might have a lot of book smarts and they have, you know, they might hear things online or whatever, but they don't necessarily have the experience to make good decisions. They don't have um, the experience of going through heartache or, um, you know, have experiencing a failure. They don't know what that looks like. And there's a lot of fears just because they're young. And so we have this tremendous opportunity to say, tomorrow's a new day. What did we learn? How can I pray for you? How can I help take care of you and support you? And those things have to be in that context. And um, in, in that big scope of, again, like what do we do with lethal means if there's a concern in our household? And so when it is in that context, again, it just empowers people and helps them to um, feel appreciated and loved and safe, and that's really our goal as parents, um, as friends, as fellow members of our churches, as members of our community, how can we empower people to um, to make good decisions for, for themselves and for their households and to really thrive.
0: So good. Phil, do you got any anything you want to add, any takeaways from from today?
1: There's one thing, but she finished so nicely, I don't want to mess that up, but um, you know, we think about our news sources like uh, James O'Keefe, Project Veritas. You see the things he's bringing up with New York Times and and the the suppression of, of facts that have been in our mm-hmm. news media. Now we see that as adults, but think about this for your teenagers and 12 year olds and 10 year olds. They're on their phones, they're on computers, they're on streaming services. Their information is never really corrected. They don't see the the other side of that. So you really have to stay involved with them because they're not getting great influence through their media sources and choices. You know, look at, um, look at who the social media influencers are, right? They're all half naked and stupider than a rock. They're the ones that the kids are listening to. And so it's important. I just think that the suicide thing, you, know, you look at the suicides in the teenage years, it's such tough years that you have to really as a parent or as an as an involved adult mm-hmm. who knows a child, that you really have to look for that and make sure that their inputs, you know, it's not garbage in, garbage out. Make sure that their inputs are, are at least screened because mm-hmm. somebody else is talking to them all the time and uh, they're not giving them the great information.
2: And they're not interacting with with the viewers. young people as viewers either. So it's not like the young people can, you know, ask those celebrities online, you know, tell me what your real life looks like when you're not on camera. Like they, there's no opportunity for that kind of conversation. And I can tell you as a parent that even when we do our best to protect our kids from getting misinformation, they're gonna find it. And so I encourage parents to have hard conversations with their kids. Um, And to, you know, talk about what's going on in the world, to talk about things like substance abuse, to talk about, you know, friends that are in crises, to help our kids to understand, like, um, you know, the importance of hard work and being responsible and having goals, um, helping, encouraging parents to work with their kids when they are having a hard time and help them to to see, hey, the future looks bright if we can do these things together. Um, But so many parents just, they they're just like, how was school today? And the kid's like, fine, you know, and that's it. And that's their conversation. And then the rest of the night, they're just seeing their locked door to their, their kids locked door and they're not engaging. Um, we love playing board games at our house. We love doing like service projects with our church. Um, we love having friends over and listening to what's going on in their life and having meals together. Um, so all of those things are suicide prevention. And and again, if you're hyper-focused on a firearm, you're only focused on lethal means. You're not focused on protective factors, and the firearms community is a tremendous protective factor. We have the best of the best in our community. We have people who actually care about making a difference, Um, and so something we hope to foster through our Hold My Guns partner locations is that there are opportunities, for example, for families who are gun owners to like go volunteer at their local food bank together or, you know, go help to beautify some um, graves of veterans who have fallen and they're buried in the local graveyard or to help, you know, brighten, um, to go maybe sing at at a retirement home or whatever that might be, volunteer with Habitat for Humanity and to create opportunities for people to get out of isolation, to feel like, hey, I did something valuable today. I um, brought my kids with me and they learned the, the value of hard work and helping people. All of that is suicide prevention. And we really wanna emphasize that creating a community that um, makes us want to wake up in the morning. And you know, when we can emphasize protective factors, shooting with our friends at their range, um, fun competitions, you know, clay shooting or whatever, um, those are things that we're interacting with people, we're having conversations about, you know, life as we're out volunteering together or out in the range together, and those kinds of things are really a positive influence. And so we as a firearms community, we can emphasize the opportunities that we have to encourage one another, while we're strengthening relationships, and listening to one another and strengthening our communities as well.
0: Let's have one other thing. I
2: want okay.
1: her to move in next door. I think she'd be the best neighbor I ever had. So Oh.
0: <laughs> Sarah, I love your heart and your passion. I appreciate you so much for coming on and, and sharing with us. Um we gotta stay in a little closer contact. I I think I think I need to introduce you to more people in the in the company. Um we were you know, as you're, as you're talking about the things we can do and things that we can, that they're just a daily suicide prevention.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have to prioritize we, them, don't we? Yes, we yes. can't just put off, oh, I'll get to talking with my kids later, or I'll check in on my neighbor later. No, make the batch of cookies, take them over, say, hey, can I help you with any yard work on Saturday? I have some time, you know, even if we don't have tons of time, whatever we can do to be, to help people. I hope that that is the big takeaway here, that that is good for us from a mental health perspective, and it's good for people who we can serve. And it's also good when we allow people to serve us too, knowing the value of, you know, um, of training people to look out for the needs of other people. And I think in the firearms community, we tend to just be like, wow, I'm really self-sufficient. I've got three months of food stored up. I have you know, all this ammunition. I have firearms you know, in strategic places all around my home. And I have my property wrapped, mapped out for defense. And I don't have a wood pile stacked up by my, my windows so people can climb in. And we think about all of those things. And we get this almost prideful mindset where when we are in crisis, we're afraid to ask for help and we're afraid to reach out. And so if we have a, it's normal to help people, then it can also be normal to encourage people to say, how are you doing, Sarah? Do you need anything? Um, and that reduces stigma for these kinds of conversations when life kind of takes a turn. So I hope that people are encouraged to become um, more aware about you know, mental health things and having options, but also knowing that suicide prevention is really immersing yourself in exactly what's in front of you and caring for people and caring for your community in a way that builds you up but it also builds up the people around you as you seek to serve others.
1: You know, one of the things, uh, Rob, you know, we always talk about is situational awareness. Well, what she just said, this is suicide prevention is situational awareness in relationships.
2: Yes. yes. Yeah. How would you know a person's baseline if you and have even have situational awareness if you don't know what their normal day-to-day is like? You know, um, and, and the same thing with situational awareness with your neighbors around you. If all of a sudden you see a neighbor every day picking up their newspaper at a certain time and they walk their dog at a certain time and all of a sudden they're not there and then they're not there the next day, you know, something's off. And so you have to make a choice. Am I going to knock on their door and be like, Hey, are you okay? Or are you just going to ignore it? And then, you know, you show up on the news. Well, they always walk their dog at a certain time every day. They seem like such an upstanding to you know, Like we just hear stories of, people all the time that don't really know their neighbors very well. Um, but the same thing with our neighbors on the range. Like how often do we say, how are you doing today? You know, um, come over for dinner. Like we see you guys all the time. Let's let's hang out or whatever it might be. You need to know people's baseline in order to help them. And that is situational awareness. Um, ignorance is not a very good situational awareness. So, yeah, I could talk about that all day. <laughs>
0: And just like that. She's got it like that. Um, it, it's funny. One of my, it's actually my favorite local radio station has has a little thing they say all of the time, and it and it makes me smile every single time. They say the world is full of kind people, and if you can't find one, be one. Be one. Um, I love that. I do too. Um, I, again. I wanna thank everybody for tuning in and joining us again. We are so honored to come in and share with you. I hope you pick up some things. Um, As always, we are always welcoming your questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, in Phil's case, a critique or two. um, Or three. Sarah, thank you so very much. Um, I appreciate everything you shared with us today. I'm hoping that we've got somebody out there that takes something away from this. Uh, And again, you guys can always reach me directly at rob at ccwsafe.com. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week.